so we've been going through the book of Acts, and this week we're going to look at the entire chapter, all three columns of Acts chapter 10. So let me go ahead and dig in, and uh, we will get started. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at heaven at once. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him. He fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter, lifting him up, said, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for Cornelius and for Peter. Thank you for this passage, long as it is. And we ask that you would help us to see Jesus. Uh, We don't need simply... Um, your rules. We don't need simply to know what to think about you, though certainly these are true, but what we need the most is Jesus. And so we ask that you would dig out ears for us to hear him, eyes to see him. Would you do this, we pray in his name. Amen. I don't know uh, if the name Hannah Brown means anything to you. Hannah Brown is going to be the 2019 Spring Bachelorette. Any Bachelorette fans? Just Davey. Just Davey. His hands, he was ready. No one's watching The Bachelorette. I commend you. I commend you for this. The Bachelorette and The Bachelor are some of the longest-running trashy TV shows. I've watched a few seasons with Melissa, so I'm not judging, because some of you are probably not going to want to admit that you watched that. You're writing your cheat sheets while you're watching The Bachelorette. I know how this is working out. The Bachelorette, uh, about a decade ago, there was a a spinoff, not really a spinoff, a competitive version, competitor to The Bachelorette called, or to The Bachelor called Joe Millionaire. Anyone ever heard of Joe Millionaire? No, because it's old, all right? But Joe Millionaire, the setup is a lot like The Bachelor. One Bachelor, I don't know, two dozen women competing for the love and affection, the commitment of this one Joe Millionaire. Who is, you guessed it, a millionaire? Who can win the love of this millionaire? It's like they they were trying to figure out how can we become more superficial than The Bachelor? How can we get even more skin deep than The Bachelor? Well, they did it. What makes Joe Millionaire special is a twist at the end. The final three, they're getting close, you know, angling for the love and affection of this man. And the big reveal is, I'm actually a poor plumber. Do you still love me? Do you still want to marry me? It's a train wreck waiting to happen. 
I ran across this, an old story of a man named Alfred Morris. And Alfred Morris, um, this is probably a three-year-old article, four-year-old article. At the time, Alfred Morris was driving in 1991 Mazda 626. That's an old car. It's older than anybody sitting down, right? Mazda 626, 929. Alfred gets judged everywhere he goes for his ugly old car. And here's the thing about Alfred Morris. Alfred plays in the NFL. Alfred makes $2.2 million a year driving around his 1991 Mazda 626. And then when people find out who he is, it's like, oh, you're not poor. I shouldn't look down on you. You're rich. You're humble. You can afford to buy me things. The way that people treat Alfred when they find out who he really is is really different. The way that people treat Joe Millionaire when they find out who he really is or isn't is really different. And the question that this passage is asking us is, how do you view people? How do you measure people? What value do you attribute to people? What snap judgments do you make about people? Because we don't just evaluate people in terms of money, though certainly we do that. What are the criteria? What are the judgment calls that you make when assigning value to people? There are two conversions in this passage. The one is a sort of traditional conversion in the way that we think about that, and that is Cornelius. Cornelius is saved from his sins in this passage. He is born again. He has faith in Jesus Christ's conversion. And the other conversion is Peter, and it's not the same kind of conversion. Peter's already an apostle. He already knows Jesus. What I mean is Jesus is beginning to change the way that Peter thinks about people, namely people that are not like him. He begins to learn how to love people who aren't like him. And so we find the passage, this passage, begins to challenge some of our most basic assumptions that we often make about people, people in this room, people on campus, people in our classes. So let's look at Cornelius. What do we know about Cornelius in this passage? Some of the things that we've read about him, he's, he's a devout man. He's generous. He prays. He's the kind of guy that I would like my daughter to marry. Maybe he's the kind of guy that some of you ladies would be like, I would love to end up with somebody like this who is devout, prays, is generous. He's a kind person. We read about Cornelius in this passage. We see this is a great guy. He's a good guy. Peter sees somebody altogether different, at least initially. You see, Cornelius is a God-fearer. We read that. He fears God. And it, and it may just seem like random words. This is actually a technical term in the New Testament. A God-fearer. Who is a God-fearer, you ask? A God-fearer is a Gentile. That is not a Jewish person who loves and cares about the God of Israel. So he cares about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He listens to the Torah as it is taught. Uh, He believes a lot of these things, and yet he does not want to get circumcised or eat the food laws. So he's a God-fearer. He's not a convert. He hasn't fully joined God's people, but he respects them tremendously, even supports them with his money sometimes. 
And so God meets this man's need for conversion in this passage. He sends an angel and says, now you send for Peter. But what do we know about Peter? He's the chief apostle, right? An obvious follower of Jesus. He's a good Jewish man. He has been circumcised. He has kept the food laws. And what happens is he sort of increasingly distanced himself from people who don't. People who have not been circumcised, people who don't eat like he eats, ugh, they're, they're a little bit dirty, a little bit unclean. He has separated himself from them. Now, it's important to note, the laws that Peter cares about are not man-made, but they are temporary. And more than that, he has done more with them than God ever intended. He goes beyond what the Old Testament says about these laws and his practice of them. He begins to get puffed up with pride. I don't eat those foods. I'm not that kind of person. Nothing unclean's ever touched my lips. Do you hear the pride? Consequently, and Peter's not the only one, but Gentiles were often treated with contempt, called dogs even. And they do the same thing with circumcision. And circumcision, we read all over the Old Testament, it's a good gift from God, a sign of God's blessing, a sign that's meant to humble God's people to say, you need God to do a work on your heart. The, the, cutting, the physical cutting away of circumcision is supposed to remind you that you need a physical cutting away of your heart. It is supposed to remind you of your dependence upon God to meet you spiritually. But instead of having a humbling effect, it's puffed him up with arrogance. And Christians today can do the same thing with good things, things even commanded by God like regularly attending things like RUF or church services. Uh, surely I'm not the only one who has gone to church on Sunday and maybe talked to a neighbor or talked to a friend afterwards and had the thought, I don't even think they go to church. As if going to church was a sign of honor and something, some respect owed to me, a sign of strength, when it's actually a sign of weakness and dependence. There are other good things that God may have blessed us with in our life, and instead of just taking them as a blessing, we turn them into badges of honor, opportunities to look down on those who don't have the same things. When we forget, if you're a Christian, when we forget that we belong to God simply because of His grace, simply because of His mercy, not because of any work proved by us or anything like that. What happens is pride begins to sneak in and it's easy to look down on others for all the wrong reasons. I'm clean and they're unclean. I'm one of the good guys. They're one of the bad guys. We all have people in our lives that we consider clean and unclean, in and out. And they may not be religious reasons. We have our own categories for those who are our kinds of people, those who are not. Politically or racially, we find our groups and we marginalize others. 
We make snap judgments based on political bumper stickers or music station bumper stickers. I see an NPR bumper sticker and I think, oh, uh, intellectual. I would have a conversation with that person. And I see like Froggy 98, I'm like, oh, get out of the way, right? Low life. (laughs) And you can think of other groups with distinct markers, right? Socioeconomic, education, in and out. Now, suppose somebody of another race or another tax bracket or another schooling philosophy sins against you. Have you ever been tempted to go for the thing that is least like you and use it against them? There's a natural impulse to write off everyone in that group as unclean. All men are jerks. All business people care about is money. All the poor are really after is a handout. All of us are guilty of making snap judgments about somebody based on how we think they associate with an entire group. How much harder would this have been for a first century Jewish man like Peter, who is actually trying to honor things that God has told him are important? He's just going about them in the wrong way. One of the things that God shows us in this passage, clean and unclean foods used to be a thing, and Jesus has said, no more. A temporary law. Jesus has fulfilled that. He's changed that. We can talk about how and why another time. God shows this to Peter in a vision. It's a weird vision. A sheet being lowered down from heaven from its four corners. And he sees all sorts of animals on that sheet that he's not allowed to eat. At least he thinks he's not allowed to eat. And he's hungry. And God says to him, Peter, if you're hungry, eat something. Eat some of this. By no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. This happens three times. Peter, kill and eat. No! Peter, kill and eat. No! Peter, kill and eat. No! What God has made clean, don't call common. I'm not not sure if Peter thinks this is a test, but imagine hearing an audible word from the Lord and saying, you're wrong. You can do this. No, I can't. Who are we listening to? What are you doing? You think this is a test? It's a powerful reminder that we often have gut reactions, instinctive reactions have nothing to do with what God desires in our lives. Things that we will defend fiercely that we might not be able to defend from the Bible if you're a Christian. Just because you've always thought something was right doesn't mean it is, is one of the messages of this passage. Christians sometimes talk about personal relationships, uh, having a personal relationship with Jesus, and sometimes it's really wonky and not helpful. One of the aspects of it that can be helpful is to think about what a personal relationship with anyone means to you. It typically means that somebody, a close personal relationship, has the right to speak into your life. 
For example, my wife will speak into my life and say, hey, you just got mad at that guy with the country bumper sticker that cut you off. Like, you should rein that in, you impatient person. Okay, all right. Thank you so much, honey. All right, but she's right. Having a personal relationship with Jesus in part means that he has the right to correct us as he speaks to us in his word. And that we need to listen, just like we would with anybody else, that we trust in a close, personal relationship. Do you listen to what Jesus says in your life, or do you catch yourself saying to the Bible, by no means, Lord, no. There's a word for us in that. We may not... We may not want to kill anybody. We may want to distance ourselves from sort of extremist, hateful groups. We may want to say we're nothing like people who dehumanize people all around us. But this passage reminds us that all of us have a heart that is tempted to marginalize others for the sake of being comfortable with those who are in and those who are out. Now, when God says don't call what don't call this unclean, he, a little caveat. Cornelius, he's saying don't call Cornelius unclean. He's not yet saying yet that Cornelius's heart has been cleansed. He's not saying that. What he's saying is associating with somebody who was not like you is not going to make you dirty. He's not saying that his heart is clean. He's not saying that everything about his life is right, and I approve of that. What he is saying is, he will not make you dirty. That's the big point of this passage. He's not, this is not to say that every way of living right is, every way of living life is good and right and honoring to God. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is, regardless of how anyone is living or what they're associated with, they, in and of themselves, cannot make you dirty. Peter, you don't have to retreat from Cornelius. In fact, I won't allow it. What are the kinds of people that make you feel uncomfortable? Who are the kinds of people that you feel morally superior to? And again, I'm not saying don't make judgment calls about what is right and wrong according to the Bible. Of course, you know God's Word tells us pretty clearly things that are right, things that are wrong. We're not, that's a different conversation. But it's part of why I'm asking, who are the people that you think are unclean? Who would you be embarrassed to associate with? To sit with in public for lunch? To have into your home to go into their home, who would you feel like would make you dirty in some way if you associated with them? Because for Peter, that person is Cornelius. Cornelius makes him feel dirty. And God says, so you need to go and eat with him. Actually, you need to have his people into your house, and then I'm going to send you to his house. You see how Peter's being stretched in this passage. He's being sent to associate with somebody he would never choose to associate with on his own. 
In verses 25 and 26, we read, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him. He fell down at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. One commentator says, Peter refused to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. He refuses to let who he thinks is his enemy, who he thought was his enemy, to treat him like a god, and he refuses to treat him like a dog. Who are the people that we treat as less than us? When I was in high school, I was a terrible student. And I would, my first period class, my junior year was, was a math class. I don't remember which one. And I would always come in, and this girl behind me would say, did you do your homework last night? And I'd say, no, of course I didn't do my homework. Joe, you've got to do your homework. If you don't do your homework, you're going to fail. And I would always get there a few minutes early, and she would say, all right, I'll help you. You can get your homework done. You can get your assignment done. You can admit, at least make it look like you took an honest attempt. And, and sure enough, I basically got through that class because she would always force me to do that. The reason she was always so helpful is because she liked me, like romantically liked me. Um, and I didn't like her at all, but I liked being liked. And so I led her on in some ways, treated her like a dog, let her treat me like a god. Right? That's hyperbole, obviously, but maybe you've been in similar situations. I've been on the flip side of that scenario as well, where I liked somebody and it just wasn't mutual. And, well, that's how it goes sometimes. One of the ways we figure out who we think is beneath us, who we think we'll let, we will let them treat us better than we treat them, is by asking the question, where do we find our hope? Where do we find our completeness? And if you're a religious type, a Christian type, there's that sort of knee-jerk, Jesus, obviously it's Jesus, but don't do that so quickly. What are we living for? Because if you are living for reputation, say, you will drop those who are beneath you on a social ladder if it costs you social capital. If you're living for comfort, you will always see people in one of two categories. Those who make your life easier and those who make your life harder. And if you live for reputation, as I have sometimes, or you live for comfort, as I have sometimes, you realize how other people become means to an end. And it's easy to discredit those who don't help you meet that end that you want. Verse 28, Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And that's a little misguiding. It actually wasn't a law. It just sort of became tradition. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Who is the person that's unclean for you? And it might be someone on the opposite end of a political party from you. If you're a Republican, it's the Democrat. If you're a Democrat, it's the Republican. Maybe it's the smoker. I mean, that's like the one thing everybody can agree on. Smokers are the worst. Who is unclean to you? Who do we label unclean? And how do we combat our tendency to put people in one of these two categories. 
The answer can't be stop doing it. Try harder. People are people. The human spirit. Okay. I mentioned Peter's getting kind of a conversion in the way he thinks in this passage, but you read this passage and he doesn't sort of have this aha moment with Cornelius. God pursues people from all over the world. Isn't this amazing? I will never struggle with racism again. But he does. In Galatians 2, Paul writes Galatians 2. Paul talks of Peter. He says, when Peter the one who has his aha moment with Cornelius, came to Antioch. I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain Jewish men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Ah, he started to get it, right? You can eat anything with anyone. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. When the cool kids were gone, he's hanging out with these Gentiles, and the cool kids come back, and he says, I don't know who they are. No, I've not been eating their food. No, I've not been sitting with them. They don't know my jokes. And and Paul says, I condemned him to his face. He stood condemned. I opposed him to his face. And Galatians is written at least a decade after this passage is recorded. Peter still struggles with seeing Gentiles as unclean. And this is, I hope, encouraging. If you ever feel like you wrestle with the same sin over and over again, so did Peter. The chief apostle really struggled with hating Gentiles. And God continues to pursue him in this. If you're a Christian... There's a good chance if I would say, what do people need for conversion? What does Cornelius need in this passage? You'd say the gospel. Right. They need to know the story of Jesus, which is what Peter tells Cornelius. You've heard these things that have happened in Jerusalem. The righteous one who was killed for the sins of the world and God the Father raises him up. Our sins are placed on Jesus. Our righteous record given His righteous record given to us, received by faith alone. They need the gospel, and that's what Peter gives them. That's what Cornelius needs. What does Peter need when he wrestles with the sin of racism? What's the meat and potatoes of the Bible that he needs? He needs the same gospel. He needs to hear the same message. He needs to apply the same message to his heart. Which is really interesting because when Peter, when Paul is talking about him confronting Peter, he goes on to say, We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. In Acts 10, is Jesus pursuing Cornelius or is he pursuing Peter? Yes. Cornelius needs to be brought into the family of God, and Peter needs to be changed. He needs to learn how to love people who are not like him. And the way that God pursues both of them is with the same gospel over and over again. You are putting your hope in something other than Jesus, Peter. 
You are putting your hope in something other than Jesus, Cornelius, and what you need is a person. A person who will make you more like himself, a person who will change you from the person that you see in the mirror every day. Whether you are considering Christianity or you've been a Christian for a very long time, you never graduate from the meat and potatoes of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection on your behalf. It gets you in the doors of the faith and it keeps you in the faith. It changes you. Peter's called to love Cornelius with the gospel. Peter, share the gospel with him that he might have life. Share the gospel with him that he might be morally clean as well as socially clean to you. Love him with the gospel, Peter. But Peter, if you think that you're above him, you'll never be able to love him. You can't love anyone that you think is beneath you. How might RUF be different if we were really gripped by the reality that no one is beneath us? How might this room look different if we were really gripped with the reality that no one is unclean to us? The room would look more diverse, and I mean that in a whole host of ways. The room would look bigger. But that wouldn't be what we needed the most. What we need is Jesus, a person who grips us, that we then offer to other people. You see, justification by faith is a double-edged sword because it says, Ah, the thing that you're most proud about yourself, that can't justify you. That can't be what gets you through life. That can't be what you hang your hat on. And the thing that you hate about others, ah, that can't be the thing you judge them by either. You have to stop seeing yourself by what's best in you, and you have to stop seeing in others what you think is worst in them. And you need to start seeing how Jesus can be offered to both of you. Jesus is with us even now. How did he live? He loved and he pursued the marginalized and the immoral. And he's calling us to do the same thing. We can only do that when we stop seeing ourselves and others in terms of being clean and unclean. So let's ask Jesus to help us with that now. Lord Jesus, thank you for the ways that you pursued us when we were unclean. And you weren't afraid to touch us. You weren't afraid to get dirty with our filth. And we pray that you would make us more like you, that we wouldn't be afraid to get dirty in the lives of others, that we wouldn't see people as beneath us because we're as needy and as broken as anyone we can think of. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.